my name's Hugh, you're listening to the Back to the Pavilion podcast, welcome. It is great to have you with us today on the only podcast where we talk to people who've played the wonderful game of cricket professionally, but for whatever reason now no longer do. Those people have then forged careers away from playing the game, so listen as they share their stories, we find out what they've been doing and how they got into it. We even chat a little bit about playing the great game too. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, then don't worry. All of them are still available on all major podcasting sites for you to download and listen. So do please check them out. If you haven't missed any, then thank you so much for listening. And thank you for keeping on coming back. Please do continue to spread the word about the Back to the Pavilion podcast. More and more people are listening every week. I really appreciate it. Today, though, we catch up with a player who represented Kent just 11 times before being released at the end of 2017, despite taking an impressive 4 for 80 in his final first-class match. Since then, he's been very busy and been on quite a journey. So please join me as we welcome Charlie Hartley back to the pavilion. I had spent the majority of my career battling injuries. Uh, I was quite unfortunate. The first one came, uh, which was a back fracture. Um, and I won't name names, but I was sort of told like all bowlers have illnesses, all bowlers have injuries. You just got to suck it up and get on with it. Like no bowlers ever fully fit, which is true. Um, all bowlers have have bits of pain, but this was extraordinary pain, and like to the point where I couldn't brush my teeth like in the evenings because I had to like go to the floor and then get back up. And then that I finally broke down at High Wycombe. I remember I was told off for not giving it my all. Um, so I wasn't bowling very well that day. So I was in a, I was furious. I went out to bowl and the first ball, I bent my back the most I possibly could. And I just hit my knees. I was like, nope, I can't, I can't move. So end up having surgery, obviously not the ideal start. And then just as my career went on, I had, I'd get myself close to the side. And then I went away to South Africa to build myself back up. I dislocated my shoulder. Um, that put me out of the, uh, the West Indies tour. Um, and then I came back, first training session back, dislocated my finger uh, in a white ball session. And you, I, was, I was tipped or told that I was going to be starting in the white ball game because I, I finished that previous season um, against Yorkshire in, in, in those games. So it's, it's been a constant sort of nearly there and then having that setback. So I, can't, I think it kind of hardened me to the release. So when I actually got released, it was like, oh, fine, another setback but it didn't quite dawn on me what it was until i don't know probably really a year later when i was i was i got straight into lock and learn got the the investment for that just threw myself at at that sort of convincing myself bill for it'll be fine everyone's going to love this educational app it's going to be massive and and i'll forget about the the negative and obviously as every business goes, it's not gone as smoothly as, as I'd hoped. So I ended up it hitting me probably a year later, as I said, and, and that's when I went, Oh God, I've, I've lost that identity of a sportsman, mm. um, which, I mean, I have a few mates that play professional sports still and some that are leaving um, some that are on their last year of contract now that have been through injuries. And it's just, I, I mean, I'm so lucky that I got released in the situation I did really mm. because I can moan about it all I like, but look at people like, uh, that are young players now that have no idea what's going to happen to them until September. No, I mean, I, I tweeted the other week about how concerned I was for players in the last year of their careers, you know, mm. 
and with counties feeling that financial pinch, I think it could there could be a lot of players released at this end of this season without really having had an opportunity to earn a contract. Yeah. How much notice did you get that you were going to be released? Was it a, did you know earlier on, or was it sort of at the end of the season? No, sorry, that's it. Now, mine was a difficult one because I think when I was involved, I was quite um, emotion driven. I wasn't sort of logically thinking about it. So I'm sure. I'm sure there were times where Walksy and other coaches had sort of prompted to me um, that, that there was a decent chance I was going to get released. But my issue was the senior players that I was talking to were all saying, mate, you'll be fine. Look, you, literally a few weeks ago, you took six, six wickets in a game against West Indies. Um, a year ago, you, you were on Sky, one of our better players um, in, a, in a Yorkshire game. And you got man of the match the, year, the game before that against Gloucester. So I was kind of convincing myself I'm sure they can't release me. Like I've done fitness. I've always been at the top. Um, Injuries are just unlucky, but everyone goes through them. And I'd seen other players supported through injuries. So I kind of, I think I was convincing myself, which is a big danger when you get into that situation because you stop listening to what possibly is right in front of you. Uh, But the actual day I got released, I was very fortunate um, that I was very close with Sam Northeast. Mm. And uh, he he sort of gave me the honest truths um, very close to the time, which was amazing of him. I remember he was in the middle of a game and he called me down to the pub and, and we sat there chatting, which, I mean, so much respect for the man because when I was going through that, I didn't know who I could turn to. I didn't know who, was, who I could trust. I didn't know who was, who was telling the truth. And then someone like him who, who I, hadn't, I wasn't that close with when I was playing, but for him to sort of give me that honesty um, was what I needed. Um, and then I went into the meeting room and, and as you do, they give you quite a few excuses. Um, but I was kind of, I was kitted up and ready for those excuses. So I had my numbers to display back. Um, and in the end it was just, look, it came into a decision between you and, um, Grant Stewart and we decided to pick Grant. So fair enough. And and Grant's done well. Mm. Um, I think it was, I think it was a case of the grass is greener. New lab that's just come through. Mm. Um, obviously, things are more exciting when they're new. Um, he's a good player, so I, I, no, no sort of yeah. uh, problems with with the difference between the two. But it, I think it was just one of those that do we take someone that we've had on the books for four years and that we we sort of don't know if he's going to get injured again, mm. or someone that's new that we don't know because we have no proof. Um, so. Just one of those, unfortunately. Was um, was Sam captain at the time? He was, was, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a if he wasn't, that's a big thing to do. I mean, a captain, I suppose, falls under his remit a little bit, but it's still a fantastic thing for him to do for you. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, what was so special, I think, is that I mean, I'll probably be speaking out of turn, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, the, the club was a bit of a shambles. Um, the the setup was really not good. Um, the environment was struggling. There was a lot of a power shift, a lot of people that wanted control that didn't have it. Um, and the youngsters, it was, just a, it was just an odd environment to try and make your way in. It's, it's brilliant now by all accounts. I think Paul Downton coming in and, and adding that level of security, um, Walksy as a really stable head coach, um, a trustworthy guy that, that you've got at the top. Uh, and Billings now, obviously, a class player that can lead from the front. So I look at the setup now and I, I wish I could have started my career in that setup. Um, but you just, you have to 
sort of play the hand you dealt really. Um, but yeah, in the situation I was in, I think it was just a difficult, because at the time, Northeast was player, like contract negotiator, um, head of cricket, director of cricket. And it was all very blurred as, as what actually should be done. It's interesting. It's, it, I think you see a lot of clubs where, um, and I've just read Rob Key's autobiography, where a lot of clubs, got that the captain is that focal point and kind of does everything. I think in clubs where it's disseminated more, I think it's far more effective from what I've seen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Keezy was one that, when I was playing, I was very intimidated by him. And I think he, he saw me possibly, I, I mean, I was a very sort of confident, some would call arrogant um, young kid and sort of bolshed my way into the dressing room thinking it would be like the boarding school where everyone's best mates and you, you run around having fun. But um, Keezy was a, a very sort of strong figurehead at the top. And I sort of struggled working out where I sat. Mm. Um, but since leaving, um, it's been really nice, actually, because he's, he's re- been really supportive. Um, and whenever I've reached out to sort of ask questions or to ask support, he's always answered with respect. Like there's, no, there's never been a sort of, I didn't like you when I was playing, so I'm not going to reply to you, which you get a lot of when you ah. leave the game, um, a hell of a lot of. So for someone like that to still be engaging with someone like me which let's be honest I didn't play much of the game I'm not a name or, or didn't do anything spectacular so it wouldn't surprise me if he turned around and and didn't want to reply but I just thought it was it shows the respect to the man when you see things like that when there's no need for him to help me shows class doesn't it yeah definitely definitely Did, when you were released by Kent was it you, you mentioned earlier one of your businesses that you got was it always your intention then to go straight into business or was it no I want to go and find myself another county so you know I know you trialed with Derbyshire before um at, at some stage was it was it sort of always a two-pronged approach or was it more focused it was predominantly to get back into cricket um it all to be honest I still want to but the the drive isn't necessarily to play the game the drive is to try and prove everyone wrong that I shouldn't have been released in the first time in the first first instance um I think the issue is I know that as a cricketer, you just don't get paid unless you're right at the top. I mean, I look at the salaries and I was on 24 grand a year pretty much for four years. Um, No real increase, no real sort of drive. And you can get that doing almost anything if you work hard. There's almost every every job can offer that if you work the hours that that is needed. Um, So for me, it was a... Do I love sport? Yes, absolutely. Do I want to play cricket again? Absolutely. Can I do what I see a lot of players do, which is spend my 20s trialling and being treated badly and possibly be 30 without a secure income and the same look back at my career of, oh, if only, mm. as, as I would do at 25. So I just made that decision that I'll give one crack for Derby. I was very honest with them. I said that this is, this is my big chance. Um, and they, I played quite well for them. Um, you took wickets. I remember. Yeah, I say I, I remember coming down and watching you. Um, oh, I forget who I always. No matter what, I always try and watch cricket on my birthday because it's the sixteenth of April. And I remember coming. The only cricket sort of in my area was a twos game that and you were playing. And I remember chatting to some of the guys at the time and going, you know, he, he looks decent. You took wickets, and I was I was really surprised when Darvish didn't sign you up, I have to say. 
again, I think it was just wrong place, wrong time. Again, I think I was just un, unlucky in my opinion. Um, I mean, as I said, I played well. Um, the coaches were, were, were complimentary. I did everything I needed to. Um, I remember I was really ill. Um, I was sick at like three, four in the morning, one game. Um, it was at High Wickham again, funnily enough. Um, and I came back out the next day and, and I bowled, I think it was 30 odd overs in the day. Um, took a five front. That was on the hottest day of the, of the summer um, last or a few years back. And I remember them saying after me, they were like, you've got like that drive, that spirit that, that you need in sportsmen. Like, I, although it's not necessarily about your skill, it's about what you can offer and how you can be as a professional sportsman. So when I'm hearing things like that, again, I'm sort of, I was getting confident thinking that this was it. I was going to, I was going to come back. And then I remember they had a big, big injury crisis and I was meant to be inverted commas next in line. Mm. And I didn't hear anything. And I thought it was a bit odd. I'd been grinding away in the twos. I had the best sort of stats of any seamer in the twos at that time. And, and then all of a sudden I saw that they had selected a lad that plays club cricket, that works in the office for Derby mm. to make his debut against North Ants. I can't, I can't remember what it is. Uh, Dan, wow. Dan, is it? Yeah. And I, I just, I was bewildered. I didn't know what to think of it because uh, to be honest, when I first saw it, I thought it was a piss take because I'd been told that I was going to be next in line. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing a, a guy that works for Derbyshire in the office, uh, a guy that had been sort of paying me my, my, my uh, fuel money has uh, been selected to make his debut. And it was all just a bit, all a bit odd. And then came to the end of the season, they changed, um, head coach and I got the call that said sorry we haven't got enough money to to sign you um so we're not going to mm. and uh, and then they make all these big signings again so look I don't know whether it was just people not being honest to me people not wanting to have the 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 sort of the hard conversations but it was just yeah it's just a bizarre sort of situation and when that happened it was just drained me I just didn't want to go through that whole sort of situation of lies again I'd rather just someone say, look, mate, you're not good enough. Mm. Give up. And I'd either go, right, I am, and prove them wrong, or go, fair cop, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe this level isn't, isn't sort of my level, and just accept it and move on. But without that honesty, I was kind of left in limbo. Was it was the release by Kent or the non-signing by Derbyshire, was, was one harder to take than the other? To be honest, it's hard to, to compare the two over, over sort of a year. But I would say the Derby one's probably worse just because I'd done everything. Um, I respected the Kent decision, although I didn't agree with it, obviously. Um, I respected it because Grant's a good player. Grant had done well. Um, and I'd had my fair share of injuries. So that was kind of, yeah, it's crap. But the, the pros are close to the cons. So... I'll just yeah. accept it. The Derby one was frustrating because I had literally done everything, in my opinion. I'd bent over backwards. Um, my first game, I think my first two or three games were all Fifers back to back. Or Actually, no, I think it was a Fifer for Derby and then Fifer for club on the weekend. Mm. Um, so it was, I was kind of doing everything I could. And then to just have that, it was like, well, why was I trialling all the summer then? Mm. Because I said to them, look, if you're not going to sign me, let me go and trial with other people. Look, just be honest. Like, if you don't want me there, I don't mind. I can take the, the criticism. There are 
hundreds of counties or not hundreds but other counties out there that that would that would um want a bowler and and be sort of keen to take on a new bowler so it was just one of those frustrating things that i just had to sw- swallow it and move on really how much kind of advice help guidance do you get when you when you're released or when you're coming you know not signed do you, is, are there people there for you who you can sort of turn to who will advise you and guide you or is it sort of you're on your own the pca are incredible um as an organization the professional cricketers trust uh, and the pca are just phenomenal what they do doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter how big your name is they're there to support you which is phenomenal i'm not one to seek it out Mm -hmm. that much I, I obviously I'll need help along the way uh, and they've they've said yes to everything pretty much that I've I've asked for um I'm I'm more of the sort of thought that just knuckle on and get on with it find a way through it and get over it really I I, I don't like dwelling or being a victim um but there's people out there for everyone I think the issue is a lot of people probably try and deal with it like that in terms of just go, I'm going to suck it up and get on with it and bottle it and really struggle. Um, but I mean, other players I played with have been brilliant. Um, still yeah. keep in touch with the Daniel Bell Drummonds, um, Dan George, my physio from, from Kent. Um, these guys that I'm mean, Sam Northeast, Anna Jadal, Joe Weatherly, all these sort of other players that look, I, I bumped into and, and yet I'm still friends with them and, and yeah. they're there for support. And equally, I kind of understand that I feel it's my position now as someone from outside of the game to check up on them and see how they are during the bad times. Because often in cricket, it's a yo-yo effect. If you're on Sky and playing well, your phone's exploding. Um, If you're in the dinks and you're playing twos, no one cares about you. So it's a huge yo-yo that that kind of just, I think that's the hardest bit about sport and cricket. I mean, you, since then you, you've gone on. You've got two businesses. You've got Lock, Lock and Learn, and you've got Moonrise. What was it always going to be business for you? Not coaching or media or um, coaching. I've always done. Mm. Um, I've always enjoyed coaching. Always liked trying to help people out. Um, the problem solving aspect of coaching, I absolutely adore, um, and I'm pretty good with kids. So it's kind of always been there. I've always put it off. Um, because I, th- I think there's always just been a stigma around. I've, I've never wanted to feel worse or less important than when I was when I was playing cricket. And this sounds stupid. There's no reason that a coach is any worse or anyone is any. The problem is when you're a sportsman, you feel and you're told that you're on this pedestal that actually it's just another job. It, it's the same. I mean, who cares? We're no different to anyone else. No player is any different to anyone else. And anyone that thinks they are, shouldn't be where they are because they don't deserve to be. Um, so I kind of put it off. And then and my mum was in the background going, I think you should probably be a coach. And I was going, no, no, I'm going to do this. And she said, I think you'd probably be quite a good coach. And I was just constantly putting it off. And then uh, this sort of new year came and I, I started up Moonrise Sport because I wanted to coach in, in state schools, in, in underprivileged schools, um, mainly because I was so lucky. Um, I have two older brothers, but I was able to go to Millfield and the coaching's just phenomenal. Um, it's, the facilities are second to none. Um, the coaching's class. Richard Ellison was there. 
um, who's just a genius when it comes to bowling. Uh, I remember I spent ages trying to work out how to, I bowl massive induckers. I meant ages trying to bowl out duckers. And he just came around to me one day, changed the ball in my hand and went, go on, bowl your in-swinger. And I swung it away. <laughs> and it's just like, just having people like that, there's people at stakes, you don't get it. It doesn't matter how good you are. You're just not going to get that support unless you've got either decent cash or you're very lucky and you get picked up. So the aim was to go into these schools. Uh, I'd set out a 10 week uh, masterclass sort of session, which takes everyone through um, every facet of the game that you need to facet of the game that you need to learn uh, in sort of um, really deep, real detail, warm ups, drills, games, trying to make it fun. Got about six grand's worth of contract and then COVID arrives. So um, lost all of them. Uh, and then the, I've always wanted to do the talk to a pro side of it. So that sort of merged into it. But Moonrise is, is there because everyone talks about the sunrise. The sunrise is the thing we see. The sunrise is the beauty we always talk about. But actually what the moon offers the world is, if anything, more important to the, to, the, to the world than the sun. Um, so that's where moonrise has come from. Um, that actually, let's look at the things that we can't see because that's where the hidden gold is. That's where the things that are the most useful are. I love that. That's, uh, that's a really nice, it's an, a nice way to come up with a name. What about lock and learn? Where did that come from? <laughs> what, what's that about? Uh, so lock and learn is, uh, it's an educational app um there for parents it's it's there to sort of aid or, or to to reduce screen time really um it was kind of a combination of two things one was being in the dressing room and seeing everyone on their phones um i'm guilty for it i'm addicted to my phone um as much as it is business as well and that's an unfortunate thing when you're starting up a business you have to be glued to your phone um but i just don't like that aspect of it ruling us um and i think we're in an era where you're trying to tell everyone how to do things rather than teach. So I came up with this idea of, well, okay, how do we incentivize sort of children to, to use their phone productively? So what it is, is parents will set schedules on their child's phone. And then when the child tries to use their phone during that time, all their apps disappear. Um, and they can make, they have a choice. They either don't use their phone because their apps aren't there or they can go onto the lock and learn app, answer an educational quiz based on their schoolwork that their parents have set them um, or their parents have selected. And if they get the percentage right that their parents have set, all their apps come back onto their phone and they can use their phone um, just like before. So it's just that way of reinforcing that in life, if you want something, you need to do something first before you get it. Because I think we're coming dangerously close to an era of give me, give me, give me rather than how can I give, how can I help, what can I do? And I think once we start going down that road, I think we're getting into a really dangerous position of selfishness. And that's my sort of take on it, really. I think that's a brilliant idea. You know, I, we were chatting earlier, I, I came from an education background, the amount of parents who will say, I can't get them off the phone. That, I think, uh, I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah. What, um, what skills do you take from your on-field career into your business career, do you think? I think it's been almost said by every professional sportsman, but resilience, I think, is just the most important thing. I've just been... I think you just get hardened. You just get... That's, I, spe I think cricket and golf um, are up there with probably the worst psychologically because 
you have to accept that you're going to spend 90% of your career, if not more, not doing amazingly. You're going to spend 90% of it probably being average, if not worse than average. Um, and you just have that one time, one month max, probably not even that, where people go, oh my God, he's good. Um, and I think it's, it's that accepting that actually, you know what, I've got to work so hard for those little nuggets of brilliance. And I think that's identical to what business is. No one sees what I'm doing. No one knows the hours you put in. No one knows the, the chats you have with Canadian agents or whatever at two in the morning and, and the time you put in to try and put things in place, the hours you do creating databases, email sets. No one sees them or cares about them. They just see what it ends up being. So I think that's almost identical to sport. No one cares about the hours you do in training. No one sees it. No one sees the yo-yo test or the, the times you're getting back from fitness. They just see the five-year take and the tweet that Sky put out. Mm. So that, that's the comparison. Yeah, I mean, everyone talks about, um, that I spoke to, they talk about that kind of sportsman having that drive to succeed and that's why it transfers so well. What, what do you think are the biggest differences for you in, from your playing career to sort of your off-the-field career? I think it's the recognition, the, the having people to talk to, being in that. The beauty of sport is that no matter how low you are, that your mates are all, or your, mate, your players, that sometimes your mates, um, some people are lucky enough to play with them, uh, they're always there for a coffee, for a catch-up. So even when things are really bad, you're in an environment whereby you always have people to bounce things off. There's always, Dan George was was almost as good as a psychologist as he was a physio. I mean, partly my fault. I spent so much time on the physio bed, but he, um, he was just always there, uh, always there for when I was really hit rock bottom and, and was sort of psychologically there to bring me through. Whereas when you're in business, you've just got to accept you're the only one. Um, my mum's fabulous. She's a graphic design artist. So she helps me massively with a load of the design work. But she doesn't want to hear about my business 24 hours a day. She doesn't care that much. I mean, she loves me, but, but she doesn't want to hear what my next stage is going to be or what my business plan is. So I think it's just accepting that you're on your own now and you're not going to get that recognition or you're not going to get that, that sort of arm around the shoulder until you make it enough that people care about you again. I think that's the sort of the, the unfortunate reality. Yeah, I think it is. It's, um, it's, I think that lack of feedback, I think people talked about a lot. Um, not, you know, even if it was some drunk bloke sat on the boundary shouting your crap partly or whatever, it's that lack of feedback that I think mm. people that I've spoken to have said they found quite difficult. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, on your on field stuff, do you have any sort of on field highlights that stick in your brain if you think back to your, your career? Is the a, a, a wicket or a session that really kind of stands out for you? Um, my debut at Leicester obviously is a game that will, will sort of stay in my mind. I never, I didn't perform that well in it, but I just remember it being, remember being called a rude word for 90% of the game as if it was a conjunctive word um, by Nathan Buck, which was brilliant. I loved it. I've told the brothers, as I said, so the abuse and the sort of uh, that battle was always good fun. Um, I remember that being quite a shock going, oh, this is what it's like. Okay. Uh, people moan about club cricket, but actually the reality is it's it's a lot worse in county cricket. Um, and my second first class game was against Surrey at Guildford, I think. Really green pitch, but 
I remember I bowled out my skin then. Um, Jason Roy was playing. I remember I, I had him in, in absolute bits for, for quite a few overs, got him out a couple of times, but not given. And then finally um, nicked him off. And I, th- that was sort of really nice at the start of my career to have that confidence boost. Um, but the two that, that mainly stick in my mind are the game against Yorkshire on Sky. Um, we've got Root and Bearstow and uh, the West Indies game, which was my last ever last ever game. But I remember the Sky game was brilliant because I, I, um, my boots broke in training and I, my spare ones hadn't arrived, hadn't, hadn't been delivered. So I had to use Matt Hun's Newbury, uh, New Balance boots and they gave me the worst calf cramp I have ever had. So, like, I think I bowled an eight over spell or something like that and every over after the first or second over, I was running off to see the physio and being massaged to, to the within an inch of my life, being rammed bananas into my mouth, taking ibuprofen, going back around the boundary, bowling another over. I was nearly sick every time I bowled. It was, um, but that was brilliant. I, I, I loved that. And um, I mean, I, look, I, as I said, I'm not the best bowler in the world, but to be able to walk away from the game, having a few decent wickets, it, it's just a really nice thing to look back on and go, well, well, they can't take them away from me, no matter how bad it gets. I mean, I had a look back. I th- I, by my reckoning, your last first-class wicket was Shea Hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that one that lives... I mean, it's not a bad one to finish on, but is that one that lives in the memory or is it, was, it a, was it a good wicket, if, there, if there's such a thing? Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember that West Indies game well. Um, I loved it. I was on cloud nine then. It felt brilliant to be back in the sort of limelight, if you want to call it that. Um, and I, I just, it was, it was frustrating because I remember that game. I remember sort of finishing after it and, and the West Indies lads came into the changing room and we had a good chat with them. I had a great chat with Jason Holder, who's an amazing guy, by the way. Mm. Um, he was captain, uh, what was it? no, he was 12th man that game. And I remember, he, I think he was 12th man and he, he came on and stood at like slip as a, as a fielder just to sort of see how his bowlers were and to talk to them, which I just thought was weird to see from an international captain. Mm that level of sort of uh, connection with his players. I mean, it probably happens with every international team, but I'd never seen it um, up close and personal. Uh, and then I remember England, try, uh, they toured West Indies, I think, that winter. And we got destroyed. Uh, I think um, West Indies batted for ages, and it was just quite, obviously different climates, different times. They probably don't care about facing myself so they actually concentrate when they're facing Anderson um, but it was just nice to know that I've got those wickets against a decent team and a few months later they go and, and play really well against uh, England so that was what made it I think so satisfying for me. If, if that I mean your on-field highlights are, are, may, are good do you have the same kind of highlights off the field is there something that gives you the same buzz in your career off the field? Not really, to be honest. No, um, it was all kind of just a blur. Mm. It, it was every, that whole four years was just, obviously there were good nights out and, and golf in, in between, but it was just centred around cricket. It was just everything about my life in that four year. I, couldn't, I can't really think of a single moment really in between that time that doesn't have anything to do with cricket. What about your, um, your business highlights? So that, do you have, you know, standout moments within your business career that you think, you know, that this, oh, is, this is the... Sorry, yeah. It's all right. Uh, 
Yeah, well, for me, getting the investment for Lock and Learn was probably the biggest one. Um, I left with with a huge drive to prove that I could I could get into this business world because when I was telling Lock and Learn to to quite a few people uh, to get feedback, so many people would turn around and be like, "Terrible idea! Like you're not going to be able to do it. Not going to be able to make it." Um, just the same with Moonrise. Talk to a pro. I've called agents that have gone awful idea. You won't sign people up. People won't care about it. Um, so I went away. I, I designed designed sort of the app from start to finish. Um, just the the pick the sort of uh, design of it, not the actual app itself. Took it to an investor um, who has an educational quizzes website, and he loved it and invested in it. And it was twenty five grand for the app, and and um, I think the questions themselves he gave to me for free and that cost about three hundred thousand pounds for them to make so it was a big investment really and that's i mean i'm still working on that with some indian developers now i've moved over because well, that's another story but got um pretty much blackmailed by my old developers um in the situation so that was a tough situation so there's been so many ups and downs but getting that was a real Real positive for me because it proved that actually, you know what, this industry I can get into um, and I, I do deserve to to sort of make it in this industry. If um, if another county came calling now, would it be a yes or would it be I'm done? It would be a yes providing that I had a salary that I was secured secured with. I want to build my businesses. Um, I, I personally believe in both of them a lot. And I think once they're at a position where they're giving me an income, which I can then go to accounting and say, pay me 99p a year, I don't care. Give me a, give me a shirt number and trust me and back me. Um, I think that's the position I'd need to get to, to in order to get back into the game. I wouldn't do it for my sole income ever again. Um, yeah. Um, you talked about Moonrise and they talked to a pro. You've got some fantastic players signed up for it. Who who have you got signed up? Uh, so we've got uh, Raul Sharma, leg spinner for India, uh, Monty Panasar, Saj Mahmood, Jimmy Neesham, Jason Gillespie, um, Bryce Campbell, USA rugby player, um, Scott Steele, London Irish rugby player, Hugh Jones, Scottish rugby player, uh, Ed Haller, great British um, hockey player, um, Scott Clayton, uh, GB uh, tennis player. So it, the, the names are sort of building and we're growing into all sorts of different sports, which is good. Um, and more and more people are starting to realise the benefits of it and, and wanting to, to get into this new era of coaching and, and an engagement with fans, which is going to be the norm for quite a while, I think. You talk about like, the new era of coaching. How much do you think coaching is that technical side and how much for you is more the the mentoring mental side of it i think the mental side of it is huge but you don't need a cricket coach to do that mm. you need a good dad you need a good mate you need a good family member you you don't need to be a, an amazing cricket coach to help someone mentally with with anything um I mean, I've seen some psychologists which I've known are just playing a game and they're just, they're just trying to pull teeth and trying to get the right, right nugget out of you. Uh, and I've met some just mates that are just work and, and they're just there. And when I talk to them, I relax. So I do think, I think the, the skill element of cricket 
is brilliant. I think, and I think that can be done online. Um, I think the talking side of the game needs to be talked, needs to be sort of um, expressed more. I think what I learned in those four years of playing professional sport, a way, not just the how to improve my game, but how to think about the game. I think they're more important a lot of the time than the actual skill itself. You can improve a, a player's um, statistics massively over a season by just thinking about the way they play the game. I mean, some kids are a great example going, what do you look at when you bowl? Well, I don't know. Mm. Well, look at something like focus, focus every ball. Try, try. I mean, I love doing it with kids when you, you let them bowl for 10 balls and you, you mark down where it goes on a, on a sheet of paper. And then you say, right, this ball and every ball you send to them in the right position, you sort of talk to them calmly you say, right, you concentrate, you're ready, you, you, you ready to do this. Okay, really stare at a point, focus on off stump the whole way through. Even when you've bowled, delivered the ball, focus on that the whole way through. And their pitch map just shrinks. Nothing to do with coaching, nothing to do with skill or, or a technique. It's just the concept of thinking and being really clear about it. And I didn't have that when I was playing the game. I wanted to bowl the best ball ever, every ball. Um, and despite being told it many times by coaches, but I was, um, didn't want to listen to it at that age. But I think that element of, of the game is amazing. I mean, Ryan Sidebottom's another massive name we've got on it. And mm. as a kid, if you were able to have a half an hour conversation with a Ryan Sidebottom, I, I think that is far more valuable than, than having some one-to-ones with a brilliant coach down the park. Sometimes, I mean, everyone's different, but for me as a kid, I, that would have been amazing to just listen to people at the top of their game and go, well, what did you do? Is there anything you learned? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I don't, I mean, anyone would, if you could talk to, to City for half an hour would be yeah. left feeling better about their cricket. You know, he's so knowledgeable about what he talks mm-hmm. about. He's, he's, he's great. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, if another county came calling, give me a shirt number and get off a go. You wore 22 at Kent. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, you know, weird cricketing interests is squad numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, was that given to you, or did you choose twenty-two? Does it have any significance for you? I I chose it, but I wanted fifteen, but Treddy had it. So um, surprisingly, I couldn't boot him out of that position. <laughs> I tried. I, I went up to him and we had a stern conversation, but no, I um I, I wanted fifteen. My rugby days playing fifteen, um, played at Twickenham, loved. Um, loved my rugby days so 15 was a number that have, has always sort of been there all my all my sort of shirts I've got I've got a couple of hockey shirts as well that have 15 on it but uh, 22 was just the the sort of a, a number that I liked the look of um, until I went to India actually I was in Mumbai and uh, some kid came over over to me and told me kindly that 22 or any number back to back is heavily unlucky in sport which Probably should have listened to because I got released about a year after that. Uh, so maybe he knew something that I didn't. But uh, yeah, that's how that came about. You, so you played at Twickenham. Who did you play at, at Twickenham for, for rugby? Uh, that was Millfield, the Daily Mail Cup final. Um, so yeah, I was on, on the TV afterwards doing the Gitto-esque offload and, and uh, <laughs> kicking conversions at Twickenham, which is, again, brilliant to have those sort of memories and, and, and see, those, see those clips whenever they do crop up. That's fantastic. We, when I played rugby at school, we got to the plate fight, the Daily Mail plate semi-final, which is still one of those things. I think we were one game away from winning sort of national silverware, and it was um, 
gutting to this day. We lost fifteen ten in the semi final. Oh no! And no, I and, remember we were so fortunate. We had our side. I think we had. I think there were about eight players that played hockey, cricket, and rugby all together. And we won the Daily Mail Cup final, the T Twenty uh, National Cup uh, Arundel, I think it was. And then a few years before that, we won the National Hockey uh, Indoor or, or Field. I can't remember which one it was, but it was nice. That was my love of sport when it was all just mates playing together. Um, and you, you say you've got sort of shirts and things. I mean, and, and not that people who are listening to the podcast can see, but I can see behind you, you've got your, your Kent helmet and I can see a ball behind you. Do you have much memorabilia from your playing days up and around the house? Or is it hidden away in a garage or in the loft or...? The majority of it is in the garage. Yeah, it's in there in boxes. Um, helmet. That's my first first ever Kent helmet. The old titanium one that that shatters if a tennis ball hits it. Um, and I've got a few sort of fifer balls in a in a basket. Uh, most of my shirts and kit I've given away. Um, I've kept. I've tried to keep one shirt from each year. Yeah. No, or from each format. Um, I'd like to sort of eventually sign them up and, and get them in various things. But I have some, some kit from overseas as well. We won the national T20 in South Africa with Durbanville uh, Cricket Club out there. So, so, so there are other things that, that are really important to me that aren't actually the, the county tops. Mm. So I, I keep as much as I can, but yeah, is, overwhelmed a lot of it. Is there one bit that is, you know, that will stay, you know, if you know, if you're anything like, if, you know, you've said, uh, you know, my wife regularly, tries to get me to flog some of my memorabilia. Um, is there anything that you would never sell, no matter what, anything that is you know, magically special to you? There are four, well, none of the balls I'd really sell. Um, there are four shirts. One is the Durbanville um, Cricket Club um, 220 top that's signed by all the players, like, including like the Peter Milan um, that end up making his debut for South Africa. Um, there's my shirt that I got signed after the West Indies game. Um, by all the players uh, there. I think I've got my one, one, the one day top as well that I wore at Sky. Um, and then the final one is a top that Shaw Willoughby gave me when I trialed at Somerset when I was a young kid, when I was trying to sort of make my way through. And he was the nicest bloke ever. Um, I mean, Somerset, they were brilliant lads there. Um, no one really looked down at me, even though I was a young trialist. And, and I remember being up in the changing room, being, looking at, um, Triscothic's four cricket bags or whatever it was full of cricket bats and being in awe of it all and, and I remember him just turning around to me and saying here you go buddy do you want this and and that's in my wardrobe and I want to get that signed by him eventually and and um, and put up in a house when I move out because um, they, they just mean a lot to those things the, the times when it's more about the times where people have offered me a hand and I remember it um, they're the ones that stick fondly in, in, in my memory I don't really what I've done is is insignificant really in the game, but what other people have done to me, they'll have lasting effects for the rest of my life. So they mean a lot to me. On that, if you were giving advice to a young player starting out, starting out in their career now, what would you say to them? <laughs> Be prepared. <laughs> um, I'd say, I think the biggest bit of advice I can give is, is try and work out very early on what, who you can trust for advice. Um, everyone is going to offer their their opinion. Everyone is going to try and say that they they're the best and that they're the best person to 
to coach you, the best person to guide you. They can help you out the most. Um, but I think it's knowing, taking advice from everyone and listening to everyone, but knowing w- which bits of advice are crucial to you and which bits can improve you as a player. Um, I think that's the most, most important thing as a sportsman growing up. And to just, I think the other thing is, and this is a sort of two part one with parents and with kids is it's got to be the child's love. It has to be the child's love of the sport. The second it becomes part between the parent and the child or the parents on its own, that kid will not last it past five years of the professional game is my honest opinion. Um, So I think it's crucial that kids love the game uh, and that the, the fire in their belly for the sport is fueled purely by the child. They need to be the one going, I want to get better. I want to train. Uh, when I had chicken pox when I was about nine, I remember I wasn't allowed to, to play with anyone else. So I just bowled up against a cricket, uh, against a brick wall for about three hours whilst everyone else was training. And I just loved the game. Uh, my parents just took me to the sport and then said, off you go. And I think that's where the, the game has to, that's where, they, if you're going to play for a long time, that's where it needs to come from. And if you were giving advice to someone who's just either retired or been released what would you say was the the secret to having a happy life away from playing cricket accepting that that part of you that part of you's gone if if you want to if like if you're going to move on if you're going to give it a go, another go then obviously crack on with it but i think you just got to accept it you just got to get over it like it it's it's one of those that mulling about mulling over it isn't going to solve anything um I'm, i don't I believe mental health is a really important thing to try and support, but I also believe that if you try and play the victim a lot and you and you go poor me, poor me, it's only going to make things worse. So I, I think it's just trying to get yourself a focus, getting yourself something which you can be competitive at like you were with your sport. There's a reason you made it to professional sport and that's because you're blo- probably A, very talented, but B, bloody resilient. <laughs> So you take that resilience into any job, um, any interview, and the people will see that that fire in the belly. There's a a good reason why um, employers like seeing employees that are ex-sports people, and that's because they have that bit of, excuse with the French, but shit about them. And they see it and they go, okay, yeah, I want I want someone in my business that when when every when shits hit the fan that they stand up and go, you know what, this is my time now. I, I, can, I can operate at this level. I loved everything about Charlie's philosophy, his drive and his ambition, his determination to succeed. The work he's put in and the growth that's come about because of it is fantastic. And since we talked, Moonrise Sports and Moonrise Cricket has gone from strength to strength with more and more big names signing up to be a part of it. Do check them out. Uh, they're available at www.moonrisesports.com and they're also on tr- on Twitter. So do please have a search and get in touch with them if you want to. Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, we meet a man who's played and coached at both county and international level, fathered two professional cricketers, whom one of which went on to play for England. He's also worked in the media and has written a fantastic book about his time coaching in Zimbabwe. So join me next time as we welcome Alan Butcher back to the pavilion. That's all from me for now, so do take care of yourselves and others. See you next time.
Bye-bye for now.